Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I frequently say to women, why do you say the word self-promotion like it's a bad thing? If you don't promote yourself, who else is going to? Men promote themselves all the time and nobody criticizes them for that. So I urge women to shamelessly self-promote all the time because it doesn't matter as a woman how much you think you're promoting yourself, you're never promoting yourself as much as you should be. And all you're doing is you're doing yourself justice. And it's time many more women began doing that. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, why not follow us on Instagram, where we post daily? You'll find us if you search for Don't Stop Us Now podcast. And now for this week's episode... Our guest this week is a globetrotting consultant, speaker, and entrepreneur, and she's former North American chief of the famed ad agency, Bartle, Bogle, and Hegarty. I'm talking about, if you haven't already guessed, Cindy Gallup. She describes herself as someone who likes to, and language alert here, blow shit up. Indeed she does, Greta. And if you don't believe us, check out her LinkedIn profile. Cindy's a strong, edgy character with clear views about most topics. But she's not one of those people who just says things. She's out there actually trying to change the world in her own very unique way. Absolutely. And her unique mission for the past nine years has been to make it easier for everyone to talk about real sex through her startup, Make Love Not Porn. It all started with her now infamous TED Talk, which went viral. And I think that was back in about 2009, wasn't it, Claire? Yeah, I think that's right. So in this episode, you'll learn how in her early career, she demanded her boss tell her where her career was going and how his question back to her led to her dream job. How her experiences of dating men in their 20s led to make love, not porn her powerful thoughts on why you should shamelessly self-promote and how she's been turned into a chatbot that you can't afford to ignore. I can't imagine anyone ever ignoring Cindy. Now, before we go further, a note that any of you who've ever heard Cindy speak before will already know. She's not shy using colourful language, so if you're sensitive to this or you have little ears around, you have been alerted. So without further ado, sit back. Buckle up and enjoy this episode with the unique and formidable Cindy Gallup. Well, 
Cindy Gallup, we're very excited to have you here on Don't Stop Us Now. We know you live in New York, but fortuitously, you're in Sydney for a speaking engagement, so it's so great to be here face-to-face. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Well, we are too, and we can't wait to get started and stuck into learning more about your amazing career. But tell me, to start off, your LinkedIn profile headline says, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. Can you tell us about this? Sure. I work as a consultant and a public speaker, and I consult very selectively, only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And so I sum up my consulting and speaking approach as, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. But I do that also because I'm a great believer in be your own filter. When I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do, and it repels the ones who don't. And I sure as hell want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort, and money. (laughs) That makes complete sense. And Michael Bay, for those who haven't heard of him, who's Michael Bay and why are you the Michael Bay of business? It's a lighthearted joke because Michael Bay is a Hollywood filmmaker who is famous for blockbuster movies filled with explosions. (laughs) That's great. He's Transformers and things like that, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're going to come back to your the work you do and the speaking you do, absolutely. But maybe if we rewind right to your origins, if we've got this right, you've got an English father and a Malaysian Chinese mother, and you grew up in Brunei. How did your childhood impact who you are today, do you think? I haven't the faintest idea. (laughs) I have absolutely no interest in analysing my background in that context. I have a sunglasses case that says on it, don't look back, you're not going that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I'm not sure I'm going to even ask you about your schooling or Oxford, but how did you end up in advertising? I read English at Oxford, but I really fell mad in love with theatre there and did a lot of theatre. I was present at my college, Somerville's Drama Society. I acted, wrote, directed, stage managed, and decided that all I wanted to do was work in theatre the rest of my life, as you tend to at that age. I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or a director, but I used to draw a lot when I was younger. And so at Oxford, friends pulled me into designing theatre posters for their shows. And from there, I got sucked into selling their shows. And I really enjoyed doing that. So I became a publicity and marketing officer for various theatres in the UK. And I did that for several years until I got really fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, which is what happens in theatre. And at the time, I was the publicity officer at the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool. And part of my job promoting the theatre was giving talks about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women in Liverpool. And afterwards, one of them came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. Time to sell out establishment and go into advertising. So I did. How did you actually make that leap? I mean, it wasn't a leap in terms of the fact that the talents and skills were eminently transferable because Advertising is a very theatrical business, but it was certainly very hard to get into because back in those days, and this was the mid-80s in London, advertising was a very sexy industry that everybody very much wanted to work in. So I basically went right back to the beginning and applied as a graduate trainee for the entry-level training programs that they had then and got a place in the training program at Ted Bates. And I know that you worked your way up through the advertising world to become very senior, right to the top. If you look back on your advertising career, what were the sort of the aha moments or the pivotal moments for you? 
it really was accidental. So, you know, for example, at some point in, I guess it would have been the early 90s, as a thrustingly ambitious account director at BBH, I pinned Nigel Bogle up against the wall and went, where am I going in this agency? As you do. And he said to me, I mean, he did that very clever management trick of he turned the question back on me. And he said, you tell us what you want to do, Cindy, and we will make it happen. And he said, don't be bounded by the realms of the possible. If you want a job that doesn't exist yet, tell us. So I thought, oh, gosh, you know, can't say fairer than that. Went away, thought about it. And I came back and I said, okay, my dream job, uh, and bear in mind at that time, BBH had one office in London where I was working, said my dream job is running BBH North America. And I would be okay with doing that in San Francisco. And I said that because we had Levi's as a client and they were headquartered in San Francisco. But I said to be my dream job, I'd really be doing that in New York. And he went, okay, well, you know, we've started thinking about the US. At some point we'll be there. So your request is logged. So we actually ended up opening up an office in Asia Pacific first because there were more clients who wanted a presence there. But, you know, I went out to Asia as the number two at BBH Asia Pacific. And two years later, I got my dream job, the opportunity to start up BBH in New York. But, but as I say, you know, t- that was only prompted by, you know, me having that conversation with Nigel and him saying to me, think about a job you might want that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. What a, which, which would not have occurred to me otherwise. What know? a brilliant thing to say. He sounds like quite an inspiring man. Oh, he's an extremely inspiring man. Yeah, absolutely. And you you then, you went on, you were the president of North America based out of New York. And then I think you went on to be chair and chief marketing officer for BBH globally. That's right, yeah. Which would have been a, a pretty powerful job in the advertising world. I shouldn't think there were that many women doing that kind of role. Is that right? There still aren't, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then you decided to leave the advertising world and start really the, the Cindy Gallup brand, I guess. What made you jump? Again, a total and complete accident. So I turned 45 back in 2005. And I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. You know, obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. <laughs> but in a couple of years running up to it, I'd always thought that on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been? Where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. You know, wonderful agency, love BBH to death, cannot say enough nice things about them. But the time really had flown by. And that was the point at which I went, gosh, it might be time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am. What do you got? See what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York back in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And it was the best bloody thing I could have done with my life. Well, that must take a lot of confidence, though, to throw yourself out there. Um, um, No, I mean, it didn't take confidence. It just took, I think this is the right thing to do at this point. So what I ended up doing was, I mean, I began working for myself as a consultant and a speaker, which is what I've been doing to this day to support myself. And I ended up starting a couple of businesses again by accident. Yeah. And they're both very interesting businesses. And we're going to talk about one in particular, which is called 
make love, not porn. Can you explain a bit about the background and the context to that business? So again, um, make love, not porn is an accident. Came out of my direct personal experience dating younger men. The men I date tend to be in their 20s. And I began realizing 10 or 11 years ago now, through dating younger men, that I was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. Porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I decided something about this, and nine years ago, I put up, on no money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that posted the myths of porn and balanced them with reality. The construct was porn world versus real world. I had the opportunity to launch Make Love Not Porn at TED, which I've been going to for many years. And what a famous, famous talk that was. (laughs) Um, The talk went viral, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so I felt a personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. But I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge, untapped global social need. And I use the word big advisedly because even then, back in 2009 at concept stage, I knew that if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I was going to have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass, just as mainstream, and just as all-pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So I was thinking big right from the get-go. So what I decided to do was... I always emphasize that Make Love Not Porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. If we did, amongst a whole host of other benefits, people would then be able to bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what is simply manufactured entertainment. Our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for everybody in the world to talk about sex. Talk about sex openly and honestly in the public domain. By that, I mean parents to children, teachers to schools, everyone to everyone. But even more importantly, talk about sex openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. And so given this mission of talk about it, I decided to take every dynamic that exists in social media and apply them to this one area that no other social network or platform is ever going to go in order to socialize sex and to make real-world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So five and a half years ago now, I launched the first stage of this vision, makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real-world sex. So anyone from anywhere in the world can submit to us videos of themselves having real-world sex, but we are very clear what we mean by this. We are not porn. We are not amateur. We're building a whole new category on the internet that has never previously existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube. Or rather, it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed you to socially, sexually self-express and self-identify, which they don't. So social sex videos on Make Love Not Porn are not about performing for the camera. They're just about doing what you do on every other social platform, capturing what goes on in the real world 
as it happens spontaneously, in all its funny, messy, glorious, silly, beautiful, ridiculous, awkward, comical humanness. We curate to make sure of that. We watch every single video submitted from beginning to end. We do not publish it unless it's real. And we have a revenue sharing business model. So part of the sharing economy, like Uber and Airbnb, you pay to rent and stream social sex videos, and then half that income goes to our contributors, or as we call them, our Make Love Not Porn stars. Because we want our Make Love Not Porn stars one day to be as famous as YouTube stars, for the same reasons, authenticity, realness, individuality, and we want them to make just as much money. We want to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your social sex video gets a million rentals at $5 per rental, we give you half the income. So, Cindy, it's such a beautifully articulated and fantastic mission. So, it's nine years on from launch, if I'm correct in my mental arithmetic. It's, it's nine that, years on from launch of makelovenotporn.com. And then, and it's five and a half years on from, from the, launch of makelovenotporn.tv. So, what are you seeing? Because I know there are so many people out there concerned with the everywhere influence of hardcore porn and what that's doing to young people's perception of what sex is. Are we seeing progress are you seeing an improvement in what that perception of sex is for, for young men or have we still got a long way to go in that? Right. First of all, Make Love Not Porn is entirely gender equal because porn influences young women just as much as young men. Absolutely. Secondly, yeah. and I cannot say this too often, the issue isn't porn. Many issues are laid at porn's door that should be laid at societies. It is not porn's job to educate about sex, it's societies. And society is failing its children in failing to talk about sex. That's the problem. Thirdly, the one thing I did not realize when I embarked on this venture was that I would fight an enormous battle every single day to build it. Essentially because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup can just take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. And this is all pervasive across every single aspect of the business in ways that people outside the sphere don't realize. So I can't get funded. I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank in America that would allow me to open a business bank account for Make Love Not Porn. My biggest operational challenge is payment processing. PayPal won't work with adult content. Most mainstream credit card processors won't. Every single text service that I want to use, be it hosting, encoding, encrypting, the terms of service always say no adult content. I have to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what we're doing, beg to be allowed to use their service. Sometimes they'll let me, sometimes they won't. We had to build our entire video sharing, video streaming platform from scratch ourselves as proprietary technology because existing streaming services, off-the-shelf components, refuse to stream adult content. Even something as apparently straightforward as finding an email partner to send the membership emails out with, MailChimp won't work with us. We were rejected by six or seven Gosh, before we found Sendry to Wood. So the biggest thing that we have to celebrate at Make Love Not Porn at five and a half years old is that we're still here. In a world where the tech industry has been trying to shut us down since the day we launched. So it's not even about impact because I've struggled to keep this business alive. And it's been universally positively received all around the world. But I've spent the last four years battling to raise the funding to scale it. And it's just an enormous struggle every single day. Were there days when you wanted to give up? Oh, frequently. And how close did you get? Essentially, every single day people write to us from all around the world thanking us for what we're doing with Make Love Not Porn. And that is why I can't give up because I would let all of them down. And I can't give up also because nobody else is doing what I'm doing. So I gave myself a very difficult task in starting the world's first and only video sharing platform. 
But I did that for three reasons. The first is that I knew that if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I was going to have to do it in porn's own medium, online video. Secondly, I designed Make Love Not Porn around my own philosophies, one of which is that the future is video. With the advent of the internet, communication began as text-based. Then when Flickr launched, and then subsequently Instagram, communication was photography. You know, we communicated through photos. Now, communication is video, as witness Snapchat, WhatsApp. So the future is about video, and that's why I have a video-based venture. But the third reason is, you can talk sex education till you're blue in the face. You can write sex education. You can lecture about sex education. You can make cute little funny animated videos about sex education. Nothing but nothing educates people about sex like watching people actually having it. And so that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Every obstacle any entrepreneur encounters have a sex tech business, you can triple them. Yeah. How have you actually kept yourself going? The thing that most motivates me that will ensure that I get off my ass and do whatever is a dynamic that I call, I'm going to fucking well show you. And so I've taken all of those challenges and difficulties and channeled them into inspiration and motivation. And you come across in all domains these days as extremely confident and sassy. Have there been times though where you've really lost that sense of confidence in the last few years and and really doubted yourself? And if you did, how did you get back up to get out there and show them? Sure. I mean, no, I've never doubted myself. Again, because Make Love Not Porn was an accident. This is the startup the world told me it wanted. So I've never had any reason to doubt its potential efficacy and how much the world wants it. That's been played back to me millions of times over the past nine years. The challenges have been purely financial and business ones. And there I have certainly on occasion doubted my ability to overcome those. But I guess um, it's, it's my, my determination to demonstrate how much the world needs this and how much the world welcomes this that, that keeps me going through that. And again, that is the amazing feedback we've gotten from all our members and the people from around the world have written thanking us for doing this. So that's really what's kept me going. Mm, it sounds like your why has really driven you through this. And, you know, I, I know that some people have described you as self-promotional and a troublemaker. How do you deal with those kinds of criticisms, you know, that kind of personal criticism that you get? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't get a lot of it, um, to be frank. And secondly, I don't care. Yeah, more to the point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So self-promotion. I frequently say to women, why do you say the word self-promotion like it's a bad thing? If you don't promote yourself, who else is going to? Men promote themselves all the time and nobody criticizes them for that. So I urge women to shamelessly self-promote all the time because it doesn't matter as a woman how much you think you're promoting yourself, you're never promoting yourself as much as you should be. And all you're doing is you're doing yourself justice. And it's time many more women began doing that. So I urge women to shamelessly self-promote. Secondly, the troublemaker thing came about when I spoke at the Mumbrella 360 conference here a couple of years ago. And they featured all the speakers on on the on their site, and they had had you know short descriptors underneath their photos, and you know they put sitting out a troublemaker, and a number of people kind of commented on that and said, "Oh, that's so insulting, you know, you wouldn't call her that if she was a man." And I mean, I really wasn't bothered what they call me, you know, I don't care, so feel free. I mean, 
when I walk out on that stage, you can judge me in any way you want. You can judge me by what I say and what I talk about, what I demonstrate. So it's entirely up to you. I really don't care. We've read about some of your negotiation experiences in the earlier days in advertising. What advice would you have for, we say women, but you know, it could be for anybody, if they're going in to negotiate for a pay rise at, say, performance review time, or it might be a new job and they need to negotiate? Well, the terrific thing is that uh, there's a very simple answer to that, which is just go to Facebook search Ask Cindy Gallup and message me from that page. Because last year, RGA turned me into a chatbot for Equal Pay Day. And so CindyBot exists on Facebook Fantastic. to basically help any woman negotiate her next pay raise. Let's all try that. So you go to Facebook and yep. Google uh, Ask yes. C- uh, There's a page on Facebook, which is Ask Cindy Gallup. Brilliant. So if you just search Ask Cindy Gallup. If you then message me from that page. Now, th- there is one slight drawback, which is that RGA designed my chatbot to be used in the US. And so it's built on US data. But nevertheless, the way it works is extremely useful no matter where you are in the world. It's just that you will have to enter a US postcode. So what I recommend is what a woman wrote to me and told me she did, uh, because a female credit director wrote to me and said she'd sent my chatbot to every woman in her department. And she just used the most famous US code in the world, which is 90210. So just enter that because that'll enable you to engage with the chatbot. Then, yep, it talks you through every possible circumstance surrounding getting a pay raise. And, of course, including my key piece of advice, which is that the amount you ask for is always the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. Brilliant. <laughs> I think you've done the same I've, thing. I've actually you? got a story where I was approached and being poached, basically, and I went to a headhunter friend of mine, had no idea what the salary for that role should be, and I knew it was a lot more than I was on as a McKinsey consultant at the time. And the number he said for that sort of head of marketing and sales role was triple what I was earning. So I had to go home and practice saying the number mm. in front of the mirror yeah. so I wouldn't giggle mm. nervously. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah. No, and it works. It, it works. Does. I mean, I hear from women all the time who've adopted that piece of advice and it totally paid off. Yeah, and what's the worst thing that can happen? Exactly. Brilliant. Love Love. It. Yeah, we're so going to go to that chatbot. And on advice, what advice have you got for women when you're the only woman in the room, for example? Well, I think at a very basic level, my advice to women is make sure that you are being valued for everything you bring to the table. Because if you are not being valued for what you uniquely bring to the business, if your individual skills and talents are not being welcomed, celebrated, championed, and very highly compensated, then get the fuck out. I would generally say, if you're the only woman in the room, do your damnedest to make that room gender equal. And if you can't, then you want to leave because you do not want to be the only woman in the room. The very fact you are says this is not a place you want to work. What about for those women who are passionate about, you know, the career of engineering, say, as just a hypothetical example, apologies to any engineers listening who are male and and fantastically inclusive, but let's just take that as a hypothetical example where they love the career, but by definition, nearly every organization they join is dominated by men and what would you say to someone in that sort of position? I would say to them what I say to every single woman who is always in that position, regardless of what her career path is, which is start your own company. Right, in Either that start sector. your own company or go mm. and work for a female-founded one. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I know that you said that you don't really look back, but if you were to give your 30-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? Don't give a damn what anybody thinks. Don't give a damn what anybody else thinks. Fear of what other people will think 
is actually my biggest obstacle on Make Love Not Porn because that operates particularly around sex. But fear of what other people will think is the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life. You will never own the future if you care what other people think. And so I don't give a damn what other people think. And I would have loved to have felt like that a great deal earlier. And so that is what I would say to my younger self. Do not give a damn what anybody else thinks. And would you have done anything differently in order to get to that point? No, because, because again, how I operate now is a product of 58 years of life. So that, so there was nothing voluntary about that. It's something you learn over years of experience, which is why I would like to kind of shortcut that process for other women now. And if someone sort of says, but if I don't care what people think and I do X or Y, actually the ramifications are I might lose my job or X or Y might happen. What do you then say to them? If that happens, then that is a very clear indicator you should not have been working there. Quite seriously. I mean, I say to women, you know, absolutely challenge you know, your boss on this, because you will know from the response whether or not there's some way you want to work. And if you do the right thing, if you speak up, if you say what you think, and that gets a bad response, get the fuck out. And do you think there are enough places and enlightened employers out there who can accommodate that in people's mindsets? Absolutely. Well, that's good. That gives us hope. Yeah. And I, I guess that applies if you're in a position to be able to quit your job and find another one. No, 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 not at all. Um, I say that to young women, okay, because young women are appallingly easily dismissed. Ageism operates at both ends of the spectrum. And young women have a huge amount to offer. And so I say to them, if you are working at a company that does not value, as I said earlier, what you bring to the table, you want to get the fuck out. The very start of your career when you have so much to offer the world, get beaten down by a company that doesn't give a shit about what you think, that is going to be sexist, biased. If you're encountered at the very start of your career, you already know you're never going to progress. Why the hell would you want to stay in that workplace? Yeah, I totally get that for young, particularly young, educated women. I guess I'm sort of thinking about somebody who maybe doesn't have as good an education or is in a place where economically they really have to have that job. Mm. That's really yep. what I'm... No, 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 no. I, t I totally hear you. But there are other jobs that you can take in that scenario. Yeah. There is nothing worse than having your soul destroyed every single day by being in a place where you are not respected, you are not appreciated, you are being abused, you're being harassed, whatever. Don't continue like that. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is your autonomy and your respect is the absolute critical thing. And there are always choices, even if Absolutely. they're limited. Absolutely. Yeah. What's next for you? I know you've spoken earlier about you let things sort of unfold and there's no real plan, but are there other burning issues that you're looking to address? What, what do you think is in front of you for the next few years? What's been in front of me for the past nine years, which is building Make Love Not Porn, scaling it to be truly effective and turning it into a billion dollar business. Love that. I've heard you talk about wanting to be the Khan Academy of sex education. That's, that, that's one aspect of how I want to expand Make Love Not Porn. Yeah. Right. Okay. Fantastic. What a big, bold vision. I've also heard you talk about wanting, I, I can't remember the words that we use, but wanting to really change the perception of getting older. What's your thinking around getting older and how the perception should change? I basically champion diversity in everything. Diversity of not just gender, but race, ethnicity, 
sexuality, disability, and age. And obviously, you know, as a 58-year-old woman, I feel particularly strongly about this because I consider myself a proudly visible member of the most invisible segment of our society, which is the older women. So I want to help redefine the way that I live my life what society thinks an older woman should look like, be like, talk like, work like, and date like. But I also want to really challenge and change ageism in the workplace because, and again, I appreciate this as I get older myself, there is absolutely no substitute for experience. When you've been round the block 15 million times, you are enormously valuable as a member of the workforce because whatever challenging situation comes up, you know, it's a safe bet you've been there before, you know exactly what to do, you don't panic, you know, you stay calm, you are able to manage people in the right kind of way. And I am just appalled at the way that every industry hemorrhages vast amounts of talent and skills, because every industry is ageist, fundamentally, and and women suffer more from that than men. And I also see ageism, as I said, operating at the other end of the spectrum as well. And you know, there are very fundamental ageist attitudes that are instilled in us uh, through popular culture, you know, through stereotypes. Obviously, this is something that my industry advertising could do a great deal about if it chose to. And so I'm particularly interested in challenging and changing the way that age is depicted in advertising and doing that by challenging and changing what is causing that, which is ageism in advertising. Because when you have older people planning, creating, producing the ads, then problem solved. You no longer have the stereotypes and the comical depictions and the disrespectful depictions of older people that you currently have in advertising. So I'm, I'm very focused on that as, as an aspect of diversity as well. Fantastic. Well, Cindy, it's been an amazing conversation. I don't think we've interviewed anybody quite like you. <laughs> I'm sure many people say that. And we're very grateful for your time. Before we go, how can our listeners find you? Sure. They can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, at Cindy Gallup, on LinkedIn. They can also find Make Love Not Porn on Facebook and on Twitter at Make Love Not Porn and also on YouTube, Instagram, Tumblr and all of those. And, you know, actually, I would love your listeners to sign up to makelovenotporn.tv, you know, become members, rent videos, and consider becoming Make Love Not Porn stars as well. Well, there you go, listeners. Here's your, <laughs> here's your opportunity. Tell us how you go with both that and the Ask Cindy chatbot. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Cindy, and safe travels back to the US. Thank you very much. Well, what a woman Cindy is. You know, what hit me about Cindy the most was that absolute steely determination and passion to see Make Love Not Porn thrive. Absolutely. I'd actually never thought about how hard it would be to be in a business like that and to get it off the ground. And I left the interview thinking, if anyone can do it, Cindy Gallup can. Too right. Absolutely, Claire. She's pretty formidable. What I really loved was her courage. And particularly if you think back to that story she told us in her, she was just in her 20s and she instigated a conversation about her career with her boss. 
when you look at her career, it was actually a defining moment, that instigation back in her 20s. And it's a real lesson, I think, for all of us that people aren't mind readers and we do need to tell the people we work with what our dream job looks like or if we're not sure of what that is currently, at least what we'd like our next step to be. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, You know, the other thing is I really love her determination to redefine how society thinks about older women. You know, what they should look like, live like, work like or date like. Here, here. I think we all need to channel a little bit of Cindy Gallup, if you ask me. Certainly do. Well, that's episode 15, done and dusted. We'll be back in two weeks' time with one of our how-to episodes. This time, we'll be exploring a topic close to our hearts, Cindy's heart and hopefully yours as well, how to negotiate a pay increase. See you then. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.